A warm welcome to our Thursdays with David Foster Wallace series, where we every week read a section of the infamous Infinite Jest with the hope, of course, of finishing the book by the end of the year. Today's section is pages 418 to 461 in the 20th anniversary Back Bay Books edition of the text, published by Little Brown and Company. A quick preamble to our episode today, if you want to know about productivity and my experimentation with productivity, really my obsession with it, and how I've changed some lifestyle things and some personal things to help gain more productivity in the last few years, check out our episode on Monday. I'll be talking a lot about how productivity relates to literature and reading and also relates to podcasting, so check that out if you're interested. To get into our text, we are starting off with the 30th of April, 1st of May, YDAU on page 418. So we have often in this text a feeling of being dumped into a new narrative, especially at the beginning of a new chapter like this. There are so many different threads in this book and it's hard to keep track of how to acclimate to each one as it's introduced. I actually think this section is sort of an exception to that general rule of reading this book in that there's tons of information that we have already read prior and that's reintroduced here sort of as a way to get us reacclimated to this conversation. So we are with Marath and Steeply. We're still on the mountain in Tucson. We're seeing, overlooking a lot of the city. The airport comes to mind. There's a bonfire down below as well. It's getting dark and according to the narrator, they don't really know how they might get down yet of, off of the mountain, um, which is sort of hilarious considering the circumstances. We have these little clues of Marath's wife. We know that she needs very expensive medical care which is why Marith sort of has this double spy sort of thing going on with the AFD and another organization. Um, we hear about Marith's wife a little more, so that serves to connect us to the past, certainly in this book. We hear that she's been in a coma for 14 months and that she, when she was born, she was born without a skull, interestingly. We also hear, uh, again, and our reference to a footnote that we read already earlier in the text about the induction ceremony into the AFD, which is where the person who wants to join lays on train tracks, essentially, and gets their legs removed so that they can join. Marath is no exception to this, and there's also just a lot of general reminders about this meeting. Uh, Steeply's appearance comes up quite a bit, and actually his appearance is related to one of the two major themes for this episode today. I want to talk about the broader themes of ability, ableness, physicality, however you want to put it, and also cleanliness. A lot of this chapter is a ping-ponging back and forth between Steeply's thoughts, his criticisms, his getting worked up about things, and Marath's thoughts and comments about his appearance. For a lot of this section, we are actually focusing very intently on Marath, interestingly enough, and I think this has something to do with the narrator's interests, and we'll talk about this more with Gately later on. But we have this weird emphasis, especially on Steeply's feet, and his feet are crammed into these high-heeled shoes. We know by this point that he's cross-dressing as a woman for his 
position in the BSS, and so he has had many, many other very strange assignments in the past. Um, the cult dressing up to pretend he was in a cult comes to mind, and um, just dressing up as completely different races altogether also comes to mind. So this sort of interesting boxing up of, Ste uh, of Steepley's image is really commented on by Moraith in this interesting ping-ponging back and forth sort of way. Uh, the way that Moraith really thinks about Steepley's appearance, at least at this point in the conversation, is relentless. And I think that's something that really goes into this beauty, ability, physicality theme that we're seeing in the book as a whole. And we can't really continue this conversation without some talk of politics. This, of course, is the section from earlier in the novel where we found out about the mass dissemination of Infinite Jest, or what I think is Infinite Jest, the pure entertainment cartridge, and this question of freedom versus safety, especially in American culture. We have some pretty intense critiques early on in the book about American culture and freedom, and as well, now we are getting Steepley's ideas about it. Hello, this is Editing Mackenzie. I just realized that I've been using a speech error this whole time. There's a German political party that I've been studying pretty intently called the AfD, and the acronym is very close to the acronym in the book, the AFR, actually. So if I say AFD accidentally, it's just my own speech error. It's parapraxis at its finest since I am doing a course on contemporary German media and politics. Sorry about that. So a question that still persists in the novel is what is the AFR's main goal here? We know from a couple footnotes and some background that really Quebec's main goal is separatism, at least ostensibly, right? And it seems like the actions of the AFR really haven't been going towards that goal. They really haven't been motivated towards that main goal of separatism, unless it's this sort of ironic double-bind situation that's quite complicated. And so I want to put this question in y'all's minds when we go into the text a little further, just because I really think we haven't had a satisfying answer yet. So in terms of, again, this disability, ability, physicality theme, what's interesting to me is that as the conversation continues and as we get more and more comfortable with this thread, we realize that Moraith is the one who's technically really disabled here. He's the one in the wheelchair, except it's steeply that's getting criticized for his physicality, his looks, his false bearance on the world. And by that I mean he is cross-dressing as a woman. He has a lot of very uncomfortable features about him, such as his bustier and his wig, his shoes, as we already mentioned. So there's a lot going on with Steeply, but I really find it interesting that Steeply is the only one ostensibly judged for his physicality here. Another question that I have and that I've already sort of brought up is why is the narrative focus on Moraith? We've assumed pretty much throughout the text, and I'm using this word very carefully, we should not assume anything about this text. I think every word has something new to add to the text. Um, that's why this text is so complicated. That's why 
it's one that most people don't finish if they start reading it. It's because it's just so complex and there's so much in every word, as I said. So we assume that the narrator has some motivation. The narrator at this point is sort of a casual figure. The narrator uses colloquial language quite a bit, and the footnotes are another indication of this casual nature of the narrator. Um, And the narrator is multifaceted. We get a lot of different perspectives, a lot of different windows into the various parts of this society that we're seeing, or societies that we're seeing. And so I sort of assume that there's a reason why Mraith is in focus here, and I'm not sure why. I haven't figured that out yet. I would love to hear what you guys have, if you have thoughts about this, Um, because this is something that I really have thought about, and I'm not quite there yet, I don't think. The other question that sort of is related to this question is, what is the benefit for the narrator of distancing the narrative so much from Steeply? I feel like part of the uh, diagnostic judgment here that Steeply gets throughout this section, as well as his arguments, they seem really esoteric. They don't seem like they have any footing, really. They're just floating. He's getting agitated about seemingly nothing, um, to Moraith at least, and we have this really wide distance. And what is the, what is the benefit of that? Um, Steeply is such an important character, such a vital character at this point in the novel, especially considering Steeply's relationship with Oren, and also we know that Steeply shows up to ETA at a certain point to interview at least Avril, so there's a lot going on with Steeply, and I'm interested in why there's this distance, um, and I think there is a deeper reason than just deepening the mystery of the whole narrative regarding Steeply. So that's another thing you guys can let me know about in the comments on. The last part of Steeply and Marath's conversation is on American culture. Again, this has a lot to do with the political side of their conversation. They really talk about freedom and pleasure versus pain, especially in entertainment. And they're talking, I think, indirectly here about Infinite Jest, or what I think is the cartridge that entertains someone infinitely, as we saw with the medical attaché and the police people. Um, They have this sort of futile argument about a single-serving soup can split between two people, right? They're two relatively big men, and so a single-serving is not going to be satisfying um, to either of them if it's divided into half for each of them. So, Moraith and Steeply go through various hypothetical scenarios. First, if there was Steeply as his American self, his American sensibilities, he's sort of lending them to this thought experiment, this problem. And Moraith asks him, okay, what if there's a foreigner competing with you for the soup? And then Steeply says, of course, I would take the soup from the foreigner And Marais then asks, what about if it was a fellow American? And they go through this situation of delayed gratification where, yeah, if it was a fellow American, it's likely that Steeply would just give the soup to the other person. 
There's also the mention of the word samizdat, which is where Steeply probably gets that idea to ask Oren about, which Oren asks Hal about in the novel. We already went through this a couple weeks ago, but I think it's interesting how even a single word can connect between frames of the narrative like this. So we have also a lot of vignettes in this episode. Um, I'm not sure if this is really the correct term for this sort of mini story in the text, but we regardless have a mini story. I'm going to call it a vignette about Clipperton, and this is the end of Clipperton. I'm sure he'll show up at some capacity in the rest of the book, but um, essentially what we get, and we have a sense of this already from earlier in the in the book, but no one in professional tennis took Clipperton seriously. You know, he was the player with the gun to his head the whole time, and we really had this sort of Clipperton brigade situation where everyone who was facing Clipperton had so much trauma from the thought of him losing and killing himself because of the other person's win that they just let Clipperton win all the time. So he had all of these amazing accolades, seemingly, you know, on paper. He had all of these tennis trophies, um... Yeah, he was never ranked within the tennis association because it was just so obvious that he was playing the game. And so when the U.S. Tennis Association becomes the Onan Tennis Association, there's this exchanging of staff, and the person who does the rankings on the new staff puts Clipperton, of course, as the number one in boys 18 under, so it's this sort of mistake that shouldn't have happened, um, especially considering the large amount of tradition and the large amount of in-group, in quotes, um, motivation that is in tennis. But regardless, this happens and there's this really gruesome scene, I'm not gonna lie, where Clipperton, after this mix-up, really, um, Clipperton shows up at ETA to really beg Mario and Dr. Incandenza's counsel. Uh, It's a very extreme event, especially emotionally, I think, because it even gets Lyle out of the gym to go talk to Clipperton, Um, and unfortunately, Clipperton commits suicide, of course, with his gun before long in the episode here, and we know from the description in the episode that this is during Dr. Incandenza's decline, so... This is the first year of subsidized time, and it's really a moment in the narrative where we get an understanding that this is one of the last big events in Dr. I's life. And as a result of this horrible event where Clipperton commits suicide at ETA, there is the donning of the Clipperton suite. It's literally called that, where Stitt and other people send students when they misbehave or they get the wrong idea about the show, this kind of thing. So there's this suite and Mario actually spent the whole night cleaning this suite after this horrible event himself. And so this also is an event that really directly um, 
hones in on both of our themes here for the episode, cleanliness and disability. Cleanliness in that Mario is so diligent and he was so willing and ready and prepared. You know, he refused to let other people help him out in this, but he was prepared to make the room clean again after this disaster. And, you know, what a horrible thing for a kid essentially to have to do. And also, uh, his disability is really highlighted in this event as well. You know, he's sought for uh, counsel by Clipperton here, you know, so obviously this, again and again, we have this idea, this picture of Mario that he's really mentally able, really mentally fit, but at the same time, his disability, you know, causes him to fall while he's cleaning up these horrible remains from his friend and um, you know, the physical limitations are certainly brought up in a really interesting, descriptive way when he's cleaning up this mess. After I finished this vignette, honestly, I had to take a couple days from the book just to think about it and just to process it. This was a really almost traumatizing moment for me. Um, I'm not sure about for you guys how you felt when you read this for the first time, but certainly it was something that I had to take some time for <laughs> to recover from. That's really the power of this book. Um, I really think it's important to not forget that this book is a piece of literature. You know, I often say it's a microcosm of life. It's the one book that I've read that really reminds me of the modern day uh, in so many ways, in so many intricate ways. You know, and it definitely has the space in, in its thousands of pages to do that. But it's not just a work of fiction. You know, it's also a book of literature. It's really something that adds to the literary scene and I think there's so many moments in the book this one included where if they affect you that deeply you know it's because of the writing it's because of the way it's written not necessarily because you know the event itself um, explains all of its grotesqueness just in its base description so we have another scene here uh starting in with Gately. And Gately apparently does janitorial work at a homeless shelter in the early mornings and also early evenings, 4.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. around. Um, his partner in the mornings, at least, is this guy named uh, Stavros Labokulas. I think that's the pronunciation. I need an IPA from some of these names, to be honest with you guys. Um, but this partner of his is obsessed with women's shoes and it's his dream one day to take the money that he is making from reappropriating convicts essentially into janitors. He's sort of the conduit between the convicts and the companies who need janitors. Um, take the money from this entrepreneurial move of his and put it into creating a woman's shoe store. It's a very interesting sort of postmodern idea for a character here. And unsurprisingly, really, um, the janitorial work is repulsive. I think that was the word that DFW used. Um, there's unidentifiable liquids places, there's a lot of incompetence in the homeless shelter, and you, uh, Gately, I mean, has to use industrial hoses to wash it off. I'm not going to say more just because of PG reasons, um, but 
we have this amazing quote on page 435. The people there, quote, are a better ad for sobriety at any cost than any ad agency could come up with, unquote. So, you know, I think that's a really powerful statement that really sums up the situation pretty well. Again, another clue here about cleanliness, about ability. Gately is seen as this really strong, able-bodied figure, and he's cleaning. And I think that's a really powerful act, especially considering that much of his battle in life is staying clean himself and staying sober himself. So there's, he's not only battling cleanliness inside, but he's battling it outside as well, which I think is a really interesting representation, especially at this point in his character arc. So we have another vignette after this. Uh, there's this kid from Fresno, California. Um, he wins this tournament out of nowhere. It's sort of a Clipperton-esque story. And he drinks this quick drink after winning this tournament. And uh, the quick drink in the kitchen apparently was for his father's work. I think the term was drafting that they used. There was some architecture, some blueprint drawing involved, and honestly, it's this really postmodern scene um, where all eight of the subsequent family members also come down. They're just coming down one after the other, trying to resuscitate each newly deceased family member from the poison. So essentially what happens is the kid drinks the poison, keels over and dies, the Father comes up, tries to resuscitate him with CPR, gets the poison himself, uh, the mother comes, etc, etc. You know, I mean, if you really think hard about the scene, how could they ensure each family member that there's this chain, like the book describes, that um, there's this chain of family members, like uh, the newly deceased person is automatically targeted. I mean, I just don't think legitimately and realistically that that's the case, but I think that's what makes this section postmodern. So I think a lot of this book is also piecing out the postmodern bits and, you know, why is this postmodern? You really have to question it and sort of find the, the sheep in wolf's clothing here. Back at ETA, we have Dr. Dolores Rusk, our first real description of her. We have actually heard mention of her previously. I remember writing Rusk, like in all caps, exclamation point, question mark, um, you know, so she has been in the text before, but this is finally her moment, her description, and she is the psychiatrist at ETA. Uh, there's a description that every major tennis academy has to have a professional psychiatrist on board, um, especially considering just the amount of mental endurance that these kids have to develop over their tennis careers, especially at such a young age. Um, and the book describes her as a little worse than useless, uh, just because she is not great at what she does. It seems like she doesn't really listen and she is quite accusatory. She just sort of relates back, uh, relays back rather, um, what the last person has said to her and so you know she's not helpful and actually Avril herself, Lyle, a couple other, there is a, a chef I think in the cafeteria, um, those people are actually the real psychiatrists at ETA funnily enough, the people who really pick up the problematic cases. 
So again, we have this question of fame coming up. This is sort of a 1B sort of theme um, in terms of the beauty physicality theme that we're talking about in this episode. And handling fame psychologically is really hard, as I just mentioned, especially for young kids at this age with this angle of looking at the show from a distance at first and then from very close up. We had the situation last week with La Manchu seeing Lyle about his issues with fame, cutting out pictures from tennis magazines, etc, etc. And now we get this different angle at the issue, which is Wayne, John Wayne, and how he sort of takes fame very stoically. He takes it pretty well in the narrator's view here. And that's interesting to me because we have this continuation of the same issue, except now we're looking at a more successful case than we were before. There is, to me, it's a sudden shift back to Mario's film here on iDay. Um, a real dialogue we get with Gentle, that was Yoda speak. Um, yay! Last time, Gentle was hooked up on pure oxygen and could not communicate. Finally, we get some actual communication with Gentle, but again, a warning, we must remember that these are puppets in Mario's film. We can't get too caught up in the true or false politics of the film. It is very in-depth, it is very detailed, and you know, oftentimes you can get caught up in the little things and forget the broader scope of the issue, which is this 48-minute film. So we get some terminology right off the bat, which I think is really important. So this term, territorial reconfiguration, is the great concavity. This is the crux of the cleanliness theme in this section. Um, this is the area of land that the U.S. actually gave to Canada, and they are using it essentially just to dump a bunch of toxic waste on, and they want Canada to have it to save face, essentially, the U.S. does. Um, thankfully, um, Gentle is lucid, but he is in this porta bubble, which I find really interesting. So, he's, you know, he's not on pure oxygen this time, but he is in this glass bubble, and he also has this huge mask on. So he's sort of masked. I get it's this sort of physical impediment for him. And uh, there's a scene in the movie where something gets thrown at the bubble and people are, you know, pretty amused about that. So again, even the leader of America, or Onan at this time, um, has these physical sort of impediments that are coming from inside, really. You know, he has this problem with cleanliness, so he puts physical impediments on himself to become clean, um, and he's dictating cleanliness, really, <laughs> to the rest of the country, um, and giving the dirt, giving the real problems to Canada here. And we also hear uh, in this scene 
crucially, I think, that they developed subsidized time to pay for territorial reconfiguration. That's right, Canada said, we will take your land, but you must give us money in order for us to do that. And enter Tom Veals, who is sort of an advertising guy, and Loria P. We will hear more about these two later, I am sure. Uh, what I find sort of funny, also another postmodern moment in this book, is when Gentle says, he or he recalls rather, that he has said, look into my eyes, no new enhancements. And this totally comes from read my lips, no new taxes, which I thought was hilarious. There is another tidbit about subsidized time that I want to mention really quickly, and that is that the idea of subsidized time actually comes from American football. Oren is mentioned in in this anecdote that the president gentle tells, and I'm not sure why. This is another sort of question that I'm still parsing out in the text. Is it because it's Mario's film and Mario wants to talk about Oren a little bit? Or is it because Oren is so famous that it's likely that Gentle did talk about him in his briefing? Or is this some sort of thing that's derivative of Dr. I's film? Of course, we know that Mario's film is a almost a parody. It's sort of a revision, too, of Dr. I's film on the same subject. So... Interesting question as well about Oren's inclusion in the conversation. We have the next section of just Year of the Deep End Adult Undergarment on page 442. We have this scene, which is really cool, I think, where Gately is visiting sort of this tough as nails AA group, and he shares that he really can't get through to God. He can't get that feeling. He can't conceptualize God. And I think this actually is contributing to the theme of cleanliness in a really ultimate way, and that AA, again, is this process of cleansing your internal, cleansing the physical of substances, but also spiritual cleansing. So there's sort of these three different dynamics that AA tackles all at once. Um, and they work really interestingly. You know, you have to have a cleansed environment in order to be able to do these things, you know, cleansed relationships, cleansed ideas about yourself. So there's a lot of internal work being done here that does relate again back to the theme of cleanliness in the text. And there's also this idea that and I may be pushing the cleanliness thing too far. I just really think that it's such a prevalent theme. I was thinking about this as I was writing this episode, and I just kept finding different vignettes and different parts of the narrative that really connected back, at least in my thoughts. So, you know, you can let me know in the comments if you think that I'm really pushing this too far. But there's also a moment in the text on page 4 to 46 where... Um, it talks about how there's pain in addiction and there's pain in sobriety after you have addiction, no matter what. And this is something that AA fails to mention when they en enroll you in their program, or you get enrolled rather in the program. And there's a quote that says, quote, at least this sober pain has a purpose. So here's where I really had an aha moment that I was really happy about. This um, week was quite hard for me in terms of 
parsing things out from the text. I think we're in a really liminal period in the text, a really intermediary section. So it was quite hard for me to conceptualize a lot of these things. And, you know, I think the worst crime in the world at this point would be to process things too early, or in other words, to process things without enough information. So I'm trying to refrain from doing that and really sticking to what we see in the text and what we know in the text, except for this one point, which is, um, there's this line about where people, there's a saying in AA, where they say, don't worry, you know, if you don't get in touch with your feelings, your feelings will get in touch with you. And this reminded me of the parallels between Hal and Kate Gompers. I'm talking, of course, about the one section near the beginning of adult Hal, who is addicted to weed, and Kate Gompers, who's addicted to weed in a very similar way, actually, and how their minds are confronting each other in very different ways about these substance issues, Hal has, I think, a lot of feelings to get in touch with. We know that he's the one that found himself and he had this horrible um, experience with his uh, psychiatrist and his grief counselor after the fact. So, you know, there's a lot that Hal has to get in touch with. Um, and I think the bottom line here is, you know, it's been suggested to me several times by different commenters, different uh, professors and people I've talked to about this text that the narrator is Dr. Incandenza. And so for me, if the narrator is Dr. Incandenza, then Dr. I would probably care about Hal's recourse from drugs, his recovery from drugs, which is why the narrator focuses so much on Gately, because Gately has been the really successful case in this novel thus far of getting over substance abuse. So I think this is another piece of evidence that would suggest or go towards suggesting that Dr. Incandenza himself is the narrator of the text and has been referring to himself in third person the entire time because he would, hopefully, at least one would assume, you know, and I don't want to assume, again, this is something so hard about this text is you can't really assume anything, but one would hope that Dr. I is invested in Hal's recovery, even though he doesn't really live to see it, um, the abuse in the first place, um, and therefore he would be also invested in Gately, because Gately may have some of the answers that Hal needs. I don't know, this might be far-fetched again, but this is sort of my thought process. I also think we can't ignore Gately's connection with M. Duplessis. This is something I keep bringing up because I don't want you to forget when you're reading the section. In the beginning of this section for this episode, there was mention of M. Duplessis as well. So M. Duplessis is not going away even though he is dead and he was killed by Gately. Many people also say that, you know, this book isn't satisfying because the narrative threads don't connect well enough at the end, and I think that little things like this M. Duplessis thing make a world of difference in terms of how people view the text after they're done with it. I think as many small details as we can pick up in the text as we're reading, you know, this is why we're reading only 40 pages a week or less, um, the better. And, you know, I really think it's the small details as well as a good sense of the zoomed out picture of this text that really make it successful. Continuing on with our focus on Gately here, he has 
a backstory, of course, and we get his backstory here. His mother and, to a certain extent, I think his MP stepdad were alcoholics when he was growing up. And so there was a lot of abuse involved, um, abuse from the NP to his mother, and I think also some emotional abuse from his parents to himself. Um, and he started drinking reportedly at age 11. And his mother also got, you know, a diagnosis for essentially what was alcohol poisoning um, and, you know, liver disease. And he's haunted by these things now. This is part of the feelings getting in touch with him. These are things that are haunting for him. And, you know, I can't help but remember his dream earlier in the novel with the meat hooks when he's in the church basement and people are, you know, kneeling down. And we see that he has problems sort of with this higher power notion. So the meat hooks really are a great visual, I think, for articulating his sense of God, you know, the sense of punishment almost, the sense of oblivion. Um, And I think, you know, this dream is also going to come up again and again. The next section is Very Late October, YDAU, on page 449. This is interesting because another, this is another section that has sort of a seamless transition between sections. Gately, we leave off with him, and he's dreaming about the sea, and it's this sort of abstract dream about his circumstances. And Hal is also dreaming in the beginning of this section, and he has a dream about his teeth, essentially rotting and turning into shards and he's like losing his teeth and it's you know painful horrendous experience um and Hal's dream I think is probably you know if I were to psychoanalyze him really quick here uh linked to his own recognition of addiction we already know he has some tobacco addictions he is already using marijuana recreationally, but obsessively. And that's the key here is his obsession behind the secrecy, his obsession behind using. Uh, We also get this interesting point about WYYY. Madame Psychosis is, of course, missing. Um, She's in rehab at this point, most likely, um, or recovering from her overdose. And Mario is very agitated about this, and it's very out of character for him. We know a lot about Mario at this point. Um, We're learning more every frame, really, and um, Mario had the opportunity to go to the studio where Madame Psychosis was recorded. As we know, Mario is really interested in Madame Psychosis. I think part of it is the disabilities. I think part of it Um, sort of feeds his intellect a little bit. Uh, He's interested in the concepts and the way that Madame Psychosis presents, um, as are a lot of people in Boston at this time. And he saw that Madame Psychosis used a screen to even record her shows. And so again, this is another link to this physicality, disability sort of theme that we're looking at here in today's episode. Um, At first, you know, I thought maybe Mario is liberal about this issue of disability. He wants people to be proud of their disabilities and not hide them through screens and things, especially considering Mario's encounter with wearing a veil himself, which Hal vehemently disagreed with, and hence why he doesn't wear a veil. Um, But, you know, now I'm starting to think that Mario might know or have a sense of who 
Madame Psychosis is, and maybe is frustrated because he wasn't able to visually confirm that it was who he think it, who he thinks she is. Um, I mean, he must know about Joelle. Um, there's some mention in the text of his relationship and his exposure to her, but I really think at this point it is possible, um, and I think that might be the source of his agitation rather than sort of a liberal view. But what do you guys think about this? I'm really curious as to if you have any other thoughts or any other angles for this issue. Our next section is the 9th of November, YDAU, on page 450. So we start out with this overcapacity issue of girls at ETA. It's really not an issue so much as a logistical problem where they don't have enough girl dorms, so some girls have to room with the boys. Um... And, you know, they're not in the same rooms, but they might have to do a co-ed bathroom situation, which parents don't like. It's a mess. There's a really great quote that I'm not going to read out loud since it's too long, but it's on page 451. It's about CT. It's a huge, long sentence, one of these amazing masterpiece sentences that DFW is really known for. And I think it's a really good connection between CT and Dr. I. It's sort of not pitting them against each other, but really comparing them in an interesting way, which I really appreciated when I was going through and reading. So if you're interested, go look at that quote on page 451. There's also this description of drills in this this chapter here. And we meet Coyle, who is a player um, from Tucson, a really interesting story, um, and we'll probably see him later, so I won't spoil anything in case we do. Um, my next question for you, really one of my last questions here, is how do you find DFW's treatment of accent in the text? We have this huge passage from Maraith at the beginning of the episode today, and also a, a lot of dialogue from Coach Stitt, um, and I'm wondering, you know, how convincing is DFW's treatment of accent with these two characters, with respect to these two characters in particular. You know, I'm not really convinced, actually, um, by their accents, but I'm wondering what you guys think about that. Um, and I think, you know, Stitt is supposed to be German, and so there's some indications here and there that I think really do point to his accent, but I almost wish that DFW did more with cadence and with rhythm and things of that nature, where I would get a really good sense of what these accents sounded like, because it's really hard for me to conceptualize them in my head as they're written. I mean, again, DFW does a great job with dialects, like AAVE and the dialect, the cartoon dialect, when we're first introduced to WYYY. Um, but these two accents I just take issue with in particular, um, and I'm totally open to what you guys think as well. So the drill description really reminds me of the real estate house description near the Ennett house. Uh, there's a chapter earlier in the text that we got really just blandly describing the different units in and around Ennett house. And the drill situation is sort of dry and does the same thing 
we do get an important update about Eshtaton. So most of the players are okay, you know, some black eyes here and there, um, cuts here and there, but Pen and Otis P. Lord are still missing. Pen may have some leg problems. Otis P. Lord still has reportedly the monitor um, from the game on his head because the doctors at the emergency room weren't able to remove it. And, you know, this actually might go into the ability-disability thing. I mean, we get all of this information from Axford, you know, so how, how good of a source is Axford? We're not sure yet, but this interesting, um, there's this interesting impediment now on Otis P. Lord, who's sort of this, um, or at least was this really interesting, revered figure in ETA culture with Estraton and being the game master of Estraton. So um, I'm interested to see still how this develops. And we also learn, interestingly, that Hal, quote, has an almost obsessive dislike for D-Lint. We're not going to get into this for the sake of time, but again, interesting. I think this is a point that we should hang on to and put in our pockets for the future. And my favorite part, I think, um, at the end here is just Stitt's last line, which is play. It's just there's so much melodrama behind his last speech. It really reminds me of the movie Full Metal Jacket, if you've ever seen that. I love that movie, and it's there's so much melodrama in it, and I think Stitt would fit right in. And my last little monologue note for today, before we wrap up, is, you know, I wanted to mention that there really aren't many disciplines where the players or the students constantly ask for embarrassment and feedback as often as people do in sports and in music. Um, so, you know, your skill in those disciplines is equivalent to your image. You know, it's not a comment oftentimes in music school, oh, your playing is lackluster today, it's your lackluster today that sort of feeling. And you know, it's not all the time, but I just wanted to mention and remind people moving forward, you know, I don't know much about tennis, but I do know a lot actually about, um, you know, the, the music field, which is very similar. There's the same potential for injury. There's the show, this concept, you know, the show with capital S, this big um, relevant noun and um, there's this psychological trauma sometimes involved in these kinds of fields. So I do have a deep understanding of what these kids might be going through, which I think is an important sentiment to have as you're going through this book, is to maybe do a little bit of research, read a couple articles. There are tons of articles that I've linked in previous episodes about tennis, about um, the psychological ramifications of things. So if you have any interest in that, I would definitely seek some of these resources that might help you get a better sense of the emotional and physical impact of this kind of field. 
So that's it for today. A very long episode. Apologies if you guys like shorter episodes. There is just a lot to get through and I think the overarching themes in this episode were really important to note, especially since I do feel like this is an intermediary chapter where we are still gathering information to make our next set of predictions. So thank you guys so much again for listening and I hope to see you on Monday's episode. If you enjoyed the discussion and would like to hear more from us, there is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website, relevanceofliterature.com, under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalogue of episodes. We also have a couple of open surveys that you can find through the links in the description, so if you have three minutes while you're waiting in line somewhere, we would very much appreciate your feedback on our show. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode, and we'll see you next time.